of classes. This morning's text is James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And it is, I believe, a weighty passage of Scripture. It has been weighty for me this past week as I have um, prepared. And my preparations have been wrought with much conviction. And it is my prayer this morning that you experience that same conviction, not to beat you down, but ultimately to lift you up. I have a brief outline. I didn't have time to print one, so I want to give it to you real quick over these two verses. Four points. Each verse will divide, if you will, into two points. First is this. It's the requirement, first part of Verse 11, the requirement. The second part of verse 11, we're going to call the result. The first part of verse 12 is the reason. And the last part of verse 12 and the last point is the reflection or reflection. So four, four points. Again, requirement, result, reason, and Reflection. Verse 11 of chapter 4, James says this Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And there is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? James gives us two imperatives, two commands. Verse 11 says, do not speak against, the NASB says, and do not judge. This command, do not speak against, it's an explicit imperative. That is, he explicitly says, do not speak against. I want to explain first what this verse does not mean or does not address. He's not addressing disagreeing, arguing, or even debating. And we can do that and not sin. We can disagree with one another. We can debate one another over certain issues. We can even argue and not sin. For example, we could do that over a theological issue, a secondary theological issue, not essential doctrine, but secondary issues. Uh, For for instance... um, eschatology, end times theology. We could disagree on that. Someone might hold a pre-millennial, pre-tribulational view of the rapture, and someone else might be a amillennialist or maybe a, a, a post-tribulational rapture position or whatever you will, right? And we can disagree on that. And, and we can disagree on that, and we can not sin. Now, I'm not saying just because you disagree on that, it's not sin. We could disagree on that, and we could sin in, in our attitudes and our actions and how we disagree on that, okay? But James is not addressing in this passage a simple disagreement or uh, even a debate. I mean, if Randy and I had, had different viewpoints concerning eschatology, we could, we could debate it. We could argue our points. I think we could do so in such a way that would not only edify us, but first glorify God. I could even convey to others, hey, well, this is what Randy believes. 
and not even in his presence. This is what he believes, and this is what I believe, or he could do the same for me. And we could do that and not sin, and again, for the glory of God and for the good of the saints. Again, that's not what James is addressing. Um, one, one word used um, for speak against, it's, uh, in Greek, it's kat al al literally means to speak against. NASB translates it to speak against. If you have an ESV, a new, uh, King James, or an NIV, it defines that, what it means to speak against, a little bit more clearer. And it says, do not speak evil against. So again, it's not just talking about, not arguing or simply debating or discussing. It's speaking evil against a brother. Now, it's important to understand that this was happening in the church as James was addressing it. It wasn't that he was just trying to preempt this type of action and prevent it from occurring. I mean, he was doing that. He's doing it now for us. But also addressing this sin that was actively occurring within the church. So he did it to address what was happening. He did it to prevent it from happening. And he does the same for us. Scripture does the same for us because it, 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 is, it is happening. The speaking evil against is happening within the church today, even here. Now, I'm not accusing this person over here of you know, fighting with, with this person over here. I think as we go through the text, it will become clear how this is happening or has happened in your life and in my life. So what does it mean? What does it mean to speak evil against? To slander? To gossip? Now, before we define slander, define gossip, I want to make an appeal for this requirement, this command um, on Scripture and not just in James. I think sometimes it's easy to, to, to look at a passage, to look at a command in Scripture and say, well, I mean, it is a command, yes, right? It's a requirement, but it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's just in James. I mean, yes, it is, but it's not that important of a one because it's not elsewhere. Well, this command is made throughout Scripture that we are to not speak evil against. And so we're just going to quickly go through several verses that, that highlight the fact, that emphasize the fact that we are, as believers, not to speak evil, evil against our brethren or one another. Turn with me first to Psalm Psalm 140. 140 verse 11. It says, May a slanderer not be established in the earth. May evil hunt the violent man speedily. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Turn over with me to 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. It says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, 
brutal and haters of God. First Peter 2.1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So this command, this imperative that James gives us is given to us today, not just through James, but throughout the entirety of scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what does it mean to slander? It means to make false charges or misrepresentations of another, which defames and or damages another's reputation. Reputation. So that includes what? That includes lying, right? To make a false charge or a misrepresentation is lying. Lying about someone. Saying something about someone that is untrue. Even if it's a misrepresentation. Not directly did I not lie about them, but I just kind of slightly misrepresented. Okay? To gossip means to reveal personal or sensational facts about another. Now, as we went through some of those verses previously, it said malicious gossip. Well, I believe that all gossip is malicious in one form or another. Okay? Also include in what it means to speak evil against another, it's critical comments, derogatory language, and condescending remarks. I want to look at two biblical examples first before we consider some practical examples of what this might look like in your life or or my life. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1 through verse 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering. Satan misrepresented In the garden, he lied, he slandered, misrepresented what God had said to Adam and to Eve in commanding them not to eat of that fruit from that tree. God is slandered all the time. When we misrepresent God, we slander him. We speak evil against him, and that's blasphemy. When, When man twists Scripture. We see this happening all the time in the church today. When man twists Scripture, man misrepresents what God says, ultimately misrepresenting God, and that is 
slander than it is speaking evil against not just a brother, but speaking evil against God. Another example in Scripture we'll look at is Genesis 39. I'm just going to summarize. You can write that down if you want to look at it later. But Genesis 39 is Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph was put in charge, if you recall, over all of Potiphar's household, everything. And Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce Joseph. Joseph, being a righteous man, would have nothing to do with it. He fled from Potiphar's wife. He fled from the temptation. His cloak was left behind. And what did Potiphar's wife do? Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of trying to make sport with her. Accused him of trying to take advantage of her. She lied. She misrepresented. She slandered, right? She spoke evil against, and the result was he was thrown in prison. And good, again, what, what, what Satan would have used in that to ultimately destroy God's plan for Israel, God used to redeem Israel in it. But again, another biblical example of, of this, of the slander, of speaking evil against another. And there's many more examples in Scripture, and we're not going to look at those. might be something for you this week to consider um, other examples in Scripture, how Christ was slandered. In fact, Christ was said to have had a demon in him. It was slander, speaking evil against. Now, we do this. We speak evil against one another, um, one directly with words. I have been greatly convicted over this text this week. Um, at first, as I started studying it, and, and I just read the, the, the first verse of 11, oh, don't speak evil against one another. I mean, I'm not, I'm not guilty of that. I mean, I don't, I don't do that. I mean, that's probably some pretty harsh stuff, you know. Um, we turned the, let's give you an example, turned the, um, the news on this morning. My wife turned it on as, as we were getting dressed, and they were talking about the pro-life, pro-choice issue. And this particular individual came on the, the news and was, was pro-choice. And the first words out of my mouth were, she's a liberal puke. I, it's harsh. That's harsh. I, I see your reaction. I'm guilty. That's, that's, that's it right there. Speaking evil against. We misrepresent how many times have we argued maybe with your spouse or with your sibling and in your argument, maybe to their face or maybe to another, you've misrepresented their, their position. Well, she wants me to do this. Or he said he doesn't want to do that. And you're twisting. You're misrepresenting. We also do this with our silence. How many times have you, have I, been involved in a conversation with another individual who is actively, with words, speaking evil against, slandering, gossiping about someone? And in our silence, we sit there and we listen. And we even give positive feedback within the conversation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow, you don't say. He did what? Uh-huh. Okay, I didn't know that. And our silence, when we do that, we are participating in that person's sin. And as believers, when we find ourselves in those types of conversations, especially with other believers, what are, what are we supposed to do? 
According to Matthew chapter 18, what are we supposed to do when your brother sins? What? Go to him, right? The purpose of exposing that sin, that that brother might be brought to repentance. And we'll look at that verse a little bit later. But even in that situation, especially when we're, we're conversing with another believer and that person is, is slandering someone, that person is speaking evil against someone, our responsibility is to say, wait a minute, stop. We shouldn't be having this conversation. What you're saying is is wrong. Now, maybe what you're saying about that person is truthful or not truthful. I don't know. But what you're saying, how it's being said is wrong because we're commanded here in Scripture not to do this. But, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty more often than not. I just sit there and I just listen. And I say, uh-huh, okay, wow, I didn't know that. And then that I participate in that sin and am just as guilty as the one who directly with their words spoke evil against whomever it was they were speaking against. Now, I want you to know that we can speak truth and still be guilty of speaking evil against. For example, say we have a a known heretic, right? What this person is espousing is heretical. It's false, and we can go to Scripture and we can demonstrate that what that person is saying is heretical and is false. One, we're obligated as, as believers to do that, okay? But how we convey that truth, right? How we convey it can either be done in such a way that is not sin, out of a pure heart with pure motives. I am genuinely concerned because he is a heretic. And this is what he teaches, and this is what scripture says, and he's wrong, and I want to warn you, and I want to warn the church, and I want to protect you, and I want to protect the church, and, and, and just, just listen to what I'm saying. I think you can do that and not sin, but I think we can also do it and say, you know, that guy's a heretic. Just a, just a horrible, just, I mean, what would possess a person to teach such garbage? I'll tell you what it is. I mean, the guy, he's, he just loves himself, and, and he's, I'm sure he's just doing it just for money. Well, regardless of why he's doing it, he's crazy. He's lost his mind. He's a heretic, probably some pagan, godless weirdo. But I'll tell you right now, he's wrong. And when we do it like that, we do it in such a way that isn't done out of concern for God's glory and the protection of the church or other believers, we do that to exalt ourselves as we speak low of whoever it is we're speaking about. So it is an issue of the heart. When we speak evil against another, another brethren, we're guilty of the sin of self-exaltation. Ultimately, we do that because we want to exalt ourselves as we degrade the other, regardless of whether or not it's true. Recently, um, I, was, I was thinking about uh, several months back during the, uh, I can't remember, the, the girl in Florida that most likely killed her child in one way or another, directly or indirectly. Um, and as we were watching that trial unfold and facts being conveyed, I wondered about how many times I conveyed those facts to another, the truth, but I did so in such a way that elevated myself as being better than that individual. Conveying facts, yes, but sinning in my self-exaltation. 
Philippians 2, 3 says what? That we're to consider others better than ourselves. But when we exalt us, when you exalt yourself over anyone else, regardless of why, regardless of the circumstances, then you are guilty, then I am guilty of speaking evil against, guilty of not considering them better than you, better than me. We also fail to love others. As ourselves recall back, James 2.8 talks about right the, the, the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, which is also found in Leviticus chapter 19.18, right? When we speak evil of others, we're also guilty of not loving others as we should love ourselves. We're guilty of failing as believers. We're guilty of failing to treat others with how God has treated us through Christ. And that's with grace. And that's with mercy. And that's with compassion. The second imperative that James gives, and I'm going to call this an implicit imperative because he doesn't directly say don't judge, but really he does say don't judge. In verse 11 again of James chapter 4. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren, and he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. We'll stop there. Okay, So he is talking about don't judging as, uh, as well. So again, the first command is don't speak evil against. Then the second command that he gives, I'll call it implicit, uh, is, is to don't judge. And it's important one to understand that, that this don't judge or this type of judging, James is linking with speaking evil against. I think sometimes we get hung up on this. Do we judge or do we not judge? Right? Scripture says don't judge. I think a lot of times this is actually twisted. In such a way, well, well, don't judge. Don't judge me. The Bible says don't judge. Judge not, lest ye be judged. James says right here that we're not to judge one another. Well, let's consider the context of the various commands in Scripture that says not to judge. Let's start in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through verse 5. It says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Most people just stop right there. Don't judge so you won't be judged. We're not to judge. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? <laughs> you hypocrite. First... Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this command in Matthew chapter 7, not to judge, he's talking about self-righteous, hypocritical judgments, unfair, unbiblical judgments. When you judge, don't judge self-righteously. When you judge, don't do so hypocritically. Romans 2, verse 1. says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. Well, if we stopped right there, we'd say, well, we shouldn't judge. It says basically not to judge. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? It says, for you who judge practice the same things. Again, he's addressing 
hypocritical judgment. Confronting someone else's sin when you yourself are guilty of the same sin and yet refuse to have it confronted or refuse to repent from that sin. Romans 14.10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is dealing with the issue of conscience and motive of the heart. So we judge all the time in life. We make judgment calls about people, about stuff, about things that people say, about things that people do. What we can't do, and what I, what by can't, I mean we're actually not capable of doing is we can't judge the motives of a person's heart. Aside from that person coming out and telling you, well, this is why I did that. We can't judge another's heart. Only God can judge another's heart. So these verses, if we take them out of their context, appear to tell us that we shouldn't judge, period. Judge not, lest you be judged. Why do you judge your brother? But in fact, Scripture commands us as believers to judge. That is to discern right from wrong, truth from error. Scripture commands us to judge sin. Turn back with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7. Again, most people in Matthew chapter 7 want to read verse 1 and just say, do not judge so that you will not be judged. One, they don't continue that passage all the way to uh, verses 15 and 16, which says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Verse 16 says, you will You will know them by your fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? You will know them by their fruit. That what? That involves what? That involves judging their fruit. You're not judging their heart. You're not judging their motives, but you're judging their actions, judging their words. Commanded here that as believers, we we do that, and we should do that. John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Oh, wait a minute. So we are to judge, but we're to do so what? We're to do so biblically. We can judge actions. We can judge words. Matthew chapter 18 Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. What is that? That's, that's, that's judging. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is biblically judging the sin of another for the purpose of seeing that person restored. Not to you. 
not just to the church, but being restored to God, biblically judging and confronting sin to see that person brought to repentance, restored to God. So there is a biblical way, a right way that we can judge and we should judge. In fact, we are commanded to judge. If our brother sins, not against us, if our brother sins, go to him. Expose that sin with grace and love and compassion for the glory of God and for the good of that person. Also, Titus Titus chapter 1, verse 13. This testimony is true. For this reason, Paul says to Titus, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. So here Paul is commanding Pastor Titus to confront sin, to judge biblically for what? For the good of the believer. We see it again in Titus 2.15. He says, let these, or he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. That's judging, again, biblically. Also 3.10. says, reject factious man after first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. It's, again, making a biblical judgment. We can judge actions. We can judge words. When we do that, we have to do so according to Scripture. A man makes a claim about God. A man makes a claim about himself. A person behaves or acts in a certain way. Randy, myself, someone else in the church teaches, preaches, leads to something. We compare what that individual says, how that individual lives to the word of God. That is judging. That is judging rightly. That is judging biblically. But when we do that, again, we do that for the glory of God and the good of the saint. We don't do it to show, he's wrong. Ha ha. I'm going to go show him that he's wrong and I'm right. That's sin. But we do that, we confront it, we expose it for his good, for God's glory. That's what is commanded of us. That is what is expected of us. In fact, we talk about judging. James does what through this entire letter? From the very beginning of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 5, we're going to see that James is what? He's confronting sin in the church. He's judging the actions, and he's judging the words of the first century church that God had placed him over. And he's reproving, he's rebuking, he's exhorting. And again, he's doing it first for God's glory and then second for the good of the saints. So he is judging. Now, this doesn't give us the right to go on sin patrol, right? To be fault finders. I'm going to examine everyone in here very closely because I'm going to find out what your sin is so I can show it to you. That's not what we're commanded to do. But with people with whom we're in a relationship with, publicly, privately, 
as sin is exposed in their life, and it will be. I've had people in here come to me and uh, uh, correct me lovingly, patiently. I've had people come to me with concern and say, listen, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I don't know what you meant by what you said. See, when we are in close relationship with one another and people say things or people do things, right? Again, we are expected. We're commanded to question, to examine. I believe also when there are people who maybe we're not within a personal close relationship with, but with individuals who are um, public figures, be it within the church or without the church, but people who are saying and doing things within the, the public, if you will, a sphere of influence, we're again to examine that. Be it a, an evangelical pastor from Chicago, Illinois, or a politician from New York. We're again to examine them because they're putting themselves out to be examined. We're to examine them and again to make those judgments. What he says, I don't believe is correct, so I'm going to go to scripture and I'm going to examine it. What he did or what he plans on doing, I don't believe is is God honoring, so I'm going to go to scripture and I'm going to examine it. And most often in those cases, we're not going to have the opportunity to... uh, um, personally and directly confront that individual. Even if we don't know if they're right or they're wrong, or we just kind of have some questions, we're just not sure, we might not have that opportunity to confront them. But as a church, a local body, those of us that are parents and have children, we have those opportunities to examine what they are saying, right? Not only for our own mind's sake and protecting ourselves from them, but also protecting those that God has placed around us and even under us as far as in our care. Now, I believe that what this guy teaches is false. It's unbiblical. And so my recommendation would be, run. Don't listen to him. Don't follow him. I believe that that, that guy in New York, I believe that, that, that he supports the, the killing of, of babies. And so personally, I would stay away from anyone who espouses that type of ideology because it's not God-honoring. And it is important to understand that as we judge biblically, as we do what we are commanded biblically, we must first and always, no exception, we must always first examine ourselves. Back to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 5, and again, 1 through 5, he was talking about judging and doing so self-righteously and hypocritically. And in verse 5, he says, you hypocrite. Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Before we rightly or biblically judge another, we must first examine ourselves. Not just, am I guilty of that same sin? But what sin in my my life am I hiding, am I harboring that I need to repent from? And we do that, then we can rightly judge. Then we can rightly go to our brother or our sister in Christ and say, listen, I'm concerned because you said this, or I'm concerned because you did this, or you plan on doing that. I'm going to give you an example 
of rightly judging and then how it can be taken too far into speaking evil. And this is, this is an example from me, my life, recently. There is a pastor in Chicago, I'm not going to mention any names, some of you might be familiar with, who hosts a conference every year. It's supposed to be a conference for pastors, Christian, like evangelical Christian leaders to get together and talk about secondary theological issues that they disagree on kind of like the whole end times thing, right? So to get together to do this iron sharpen iron kind of thing. And, and this next year's conference, this, this leader has decided to invite a known heretic in, uh, to the conference, an individual who denies the Trinity, okay? So not only is, I mean, this person is not a believer, he's not a Christian leader, he's not pastor, he's a heretic, and he preaches, teaches heresy. Okay? So we can rightly judge that situation as believers. We can say, now, now wait a minute. Okay, I'm not judging the pastor's heart in Chicago, because I don't know what's in his heart. And I'll tell you right now, I, I don't know what's in his heart. I don't know the motives that he's doing it. Could, it, be, could, it could, could he think he's doing it out of pure motives? Possibly. Could he have some ulterior motives that he's truly and fully and completely aware of? Possibly. I don't know. I'm not going to judge his heart. But what I can do is I can judge his actions. I can say that, listen, as a pastor, he's charged with protecting Christ's bride by inviting a heretic into the camp. That's not protecting Christ's bride. He doesn't believe that this individual is, in fact, a heretic, okay? So I can say, wait a minute, there's a problem with that. Scripture clearly teaches that God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, okay? That's what Scripture teaches. That's what this man denies. And the pastor who doesn't think he denies that is wrong because he's missing something. So we can make those judgments. We can do that, again, to protect ourselves, protect those around us. However, we can take it too far. A couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, I don't know when it was, we had gotten a new soundboard. We were setting up some mics here, and so Randy and I had to come up and take some turns on talking through the microphone while the things were getting set. So it was my turn to come up, and in my mind, I created this little song about said pastor in Chicago. And so I got up here, and I can't sing, but I got up here and started singing this song. It was true. Everything I said was true. But the motive of my heart and the intent of my heart in doing that was to what? It was to elevate myself as I spoke evil against this man, even though what I was saying was true. How I did it was sin. It was speaking evil against. It was judging him because I was setting up myself as an authority ultimately over this guy, because I'm better than him. That was, that was my attitude. And I wasn't aware of it as I was making the song up in my mind. I thought it was funny. I was looking forward to getting up and singing it. And as it was coming out, I instantly realized, wait a minute, this is, this is sin. And this is sin. How I am doing, what I'm doing is wrong. See, our motivation for judging, for exposing sin, for confronting our brothers and sisters in Christ must first be for the glory of God. At 1 Corinthians 10.31. Most of you know this. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, that includes confronting error, 
whatever you do. That's, this is one of those places where whatever means literally whatever. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So first, our motivation must be for the glory of God. It must also be for the good of others. Again, Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17. Again, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. We'll just stop there. For the good of another. That's, that's another motivation, another reason, another purpose. Why do we do this? Why should we confront this? For his good. I didn't sing that song for the good of said pastor in Chicago. I said it to make myself look better compared to him. We must also do it for the restoration of the brother. We see it here in Matthew. We also see it in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 30. It says, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So another motivation in, in confronting and exposing sin and evil is to protect the church. Again, you don't have to be a pastor to do that. You have friends who are believers. You have family members who are believers. You may have children who are believers, parents who are believers, and you can and should do that for their good. And also we should do it for the salvation of the lost, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist, even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead so that um, one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, must... Uh, but, but present in spirit have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit what may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. So when we confront error, when we confront sin, we also do it to see the lost saved. This speaking evil of, this judging, judging in the context of what James was talking about, right? Judging in the context of of speaking evil against, not rightly, not biblically, but sinfully and unbiblically. It is in regards to brethren. It is Christians attacking Christians. Believer is attacking believers. And understand that it is straight out of the pit of hell. Satan. Revelation 12.10 is referred to as what? The accuser of the brethren. John 8.44 says that Satan is the father of lies. When we participate in that type of behavior, when we accuse, when we lie, we're ultimately participating in demonic behavior. Think back to James chapter 2 when he addressed demonic faith. 
Remember, that was the faith that proclaimed the existence of God. It was the faith that proclaimed, I believe, and yet there was absolutely no action, no evidence in that person's life as a believer. That was dead faith, as James called it, right? What we see here is we see demonic faith, and we see dead faith leading to what? Demonic behavior. Now, I'm not saying that if you have at some point in your life or are now or will in the future speaking evil against or unbiblically judging, I'm not saying that your faith is dead. You have to examine yourself for that. I'm not saying that the faith that you proclaim is demonic faith, but the behavior is demonic. That's what James exposes here. Now, in verse 11b, James gives us, if you will, the results. So we considered first the requirement, that is the imperative, the the command, the mandate of Scripture, which was not to slander, not to gossip, not to speak evil against, not to unbiblically judge. And in verse 11b, James gives us, if you will, the, the results of doing so. Again, I'll read all of 11. He says, Do not speak uh, against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, speaks against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So those who do this, when we, when we do this, when we speak evil against, when we unbiblically judge, we speak against the law and we judge the law. And we do so by breaking the law. Let's look at Matthew chapter 22 real quick. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So when we speak evil against, when we unbiblically judge, okay, we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. When we fail to love our neighbors as ourself, we fail to love God with everything we are. And if you recall back to earlier in James, when we do that, what? We fail at the entire law, don't we? Just one sin breaks it all. So we break the law, we speak against the law, we judge the law by breaking it, and that we fail to love God and we fail to love others. We also do it by, in fact, just breaking these explicit commands that James gives us and that Scripture gives us, not to slander, not to gossip, not to speak evil against, not to unbiblically judge. And when we do this, we ultimately are attempting to usurp the power and authority of God's Word and ultimately... God himself. And in that, we speak against the law and we judge the law. So when we do that, we're placing ourselves above the law. This is God's commands. This is God's requirements. This is what God requires of me. Okay? And I'm only going to be responsible to God 
for me, not your actions, but I'm going to be responsible to God for my actions. But when I step outside of that and I judge and I talk about you in a way I shouldn't talk about you, I'm placing myself above the law or attempting to place myself above the law. I'm attempting to place myself above God's authority, ultimately becoming a law, if you will, unto myself. Now think about this for a moment. When we, when we judge, when we speak, we'll call it words of wrath, right? this, this evil, speak against, speak evil against, words of wrath. When we speak words of wrath against another, when we pour out wrath against another, we are doing what only God has the right and has the authority to do. When we do this, our sin in doing so is not against the person that we're speaking about, that we're, that we're judging. Our sin is against God. I think it's important to understand that. See, it's easy when we think we're sinning against people to just kind of minimize the, the, um, the impact, if you will, of that sin. Well, I mean, I, you know, I shouldn't have said that. That hurt her feelings, and it was wrong of me, but, I mean, it was just her, or it was just him. I mean, he'll get over it, and it's okay. Our sin is not against that person. Our sin is against God. Think of King David. King David failed failed to lead, right? He should have been on the battlefield, right? But instead, he was sitting on the porch or whatever it was, balcony, looking across the way at Bathsheba. So he failed to lead his men. He failed to lead the nation that God had put him in charge of. His failure to lead or stemming from that, he allowed himself to, I don't want to just merely say be caught up in this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. I I am convinced that he was the only willing participant, if you will, in in that relationship. I think he raped her. So I don't think it was just simply an adulterous affair, okay? So he failed to lead his men. He, He raped Bathsheba. He murdered her husband. Oh, well, it wasn't him that actually, you know, stabbed the spear. No, he murdered her husband. Okay, he sent him to the front line so he would be killed. He murdered him. And then in Psalm chapter 51, what does David say as he's crying out to God? Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And in verse 4 he says, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, I'm not saying that when we, when we harm another individual, we don't go to them and we don't ask them to for, forgive us. We, we do do that. And that is right, and that is biblical, and we should do that. But understand that when we sin, we sin against God. 
when we speak against, when we judge. We sin against God, not the person that we're speaking about or judging. We also see in this verse, or it also is important to understand, I should say, that the law, God's law, is sufficient to judge. We don't have to judge. We don't have to attempt to judge the motives or the heart of an individual. Again, we can't. We can't do it. Try as we may, we are incapable. But God's law, God through his word, not only is capable, but in fact does. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And when we judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, we just throw it all away. We become a law unto ourselves. We become a judge unto ourselves. And we say, you know what? Scripture is not sufficient. God is not sufficient through his word to do this. But I am, and so I will. And it is sin. He says again, he speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, he says you are not a doer of the law. He says, but you're a judge of it. You're not a doer, but a judge. Now, I don't believe that the result of the transgression, okay, the result of sinning is you not being a doer. Okay, so I spoke evil against, and I, I judged unbiblically. And so because I did that, that results in me not being a doer. In fact, I think it's the other way around. James one twenty two says what? Don't just merely hear, right, but do. Those who hear, I'm paraphrasing here, those who hear and don't do, they what? They deceive themselves. Okay. I believe that hearing and not doing results in the transgression. Because we don't listen, because we don't obey and do what the word of God says, in fact, we do the opposite, we what? We slander and we gossip and we judge. I believe that not only is it a result of being a hearer and not a doer, it's a result of dead faith, demonic faith. Again, that's faith that proclaims a change. Oh, I'm a Christian. God saved me. But yet there is no evidence, there is no good fruit in my life or in your life. Being a hearer and not a doer, having dead faith, having demonic faith, again, I believe, leads to this pattern of sin, which is, in fact, fruit. But it's bad fruit. It's evidence that's bad evidence, if you will. It's evidence that you're not in right relationship with God. Again, I'm not accusing everyone of, you're not a believer because you, um, because you gossiped or you slandered or because you, you judged. Because I, this, this week, as I, again, I've been studying this text, 
over and over again, I've been confronted with the times in my life that, that, that I've done this. This morning, again, when the news was turned on. And I blurted out what I blurted out. And I'm guilty. What's the pattern of your life? What's the desire of your heart? Verse 12 of James chapter 4. It moves into the reason. Why? Why is it? Why is it that we don't do this? Now, yes, I mean, we don't, we, we don't gossip, but we shouldn't gossip, and we shouldn't slander, and we shouldn't judge, and we shouldn't do these things, because Scripture says we shouldn't. I mean, that is, in part, a valid answer, but there's more to it. 12a says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. See, God is the only author and administrator of the law. Now, the law, yes, but specifically, think of the standards and the moral mandates of Scripture, and the imperatives that exist in, 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 in Scripture for us from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. Okay? I want you to understand that the law, God's commands for us, is a reflection of the lawgiver. The law, God's law, his moral mandates as revealed through scripture, okay, is not the standard. Let me explain. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments aren't the standard. The Ten Commandments reflect the standard. Scripture reveals the standard. The standard is God. See, God is the standard. Thou shalt not bear false witness or lie. The standard isn't the Ten Commandments. The standard is God who is truth, and there is no lies in him. So I want my kids to understand that they shouldn't lie. I want my children to understand that the Bible says that you shouldn't lie. And so you shouldn't lie. But more than that, I want them to understand that they shouldn't lie or they shouldn't transgress any of his commands. Not because the Bible says so, but God, through the Bible, says so. And all of those commands, all of those mandates, all of those standards reflect him, and they reflect his nature. They reflect his character. They reflect his requirements. So again, Scripture isn't the standard. Scripture isn't divine. It reveals the divine, and I think it's important for us to be aware of that, for us to understand that. So why shouldn't we do these things? Ultimately, not because of the law, but because of the lawgiver. We shouldn't transgress the law, not just because the law says so. No. As believers, we shouldn't transgress the law because because the lawgiver says don't. Because the lawgiver says, I am completely opposite of all that filth and all that garbage and all that sin. And I don't want you to participate in that. I don't want you to be sucked in 
to that, I don't want you to do that. I am God, worship me. That should be our desire in following the law. That should be why we obey, not just because Scripture says so, but God says so, and he is the standard. Now, Scripture, understand, it is what it is and does what it does because of God. And this doesn't, these truths that I've just discussed, doesn't rob power and authority from Scripture. It gives it. Because God gives Scripture the power and authority it has to do what it does. In Hebrews, let's, let's, let's look at that just again real quick, if you would. Use that as an explanation. In Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why is that? It's because of God. Because of the lawgiver. It's because of him. Not, not just the words on this page, but it's the one who spoke these words on this page into existence. That's why scripture says what it says and does what it does. So why shouldn't we transgress? Or I'll ask it a different way. Why should we obey? We should obey because of the lawgiver. Not only is God the lawgiver, but as the author of the law, he's the only one that has the authority and the ability to administrate the law. And that is to judge and to judge the heart of man. God will judge. God will judge sin. God will judge every sin. Every sin ever committed from the garden forward will be judged. Has to be judged. God cannot overlook not even one sin. Not even in our mind the smallest of sins. Maybe just a A sin of omission. Oops, I forgot. I'm sorry. God can't overlook any of it. James says in Hebrew, I'm sorry, James says in chapter 4, again, 12, says, so again, there is only one lawgiver and judge. The one is able, the one who is able to save and to destroy. See, God the Father sent God the Son to be the payment for sin. And through his death, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for those who would repent and believe. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, ascended to heaven where he remains until his return. Now, for those who God saves, for those who repent and believe, God saves not on the basis of their repentance and faith, but on the finished work of Jesus. For them, for those whom God saves, has saved, and will save, 
their sin has been judged. Every single one. If you are a believer, every single one of your sins or sin has been judged. And it was judged on the cross, at the cross, placed on Christ, absolutely forgiven, gone. As far as the east is from the west, Scripture says, God will judge every sin. For the believers, for those whom he has saved and will save, the sin has been judged. Now, God is not only able to save, he does save and he will save, and is important, but also to destroy. For those whom there is no repentance and faith, there is no forgiveness of sin. And understand that for the person who dies in their sin, not even an eternity in hell can satisfy the righteous wrath of God. Hell is eternal. Even those who espouse the doctrine, it's not a doctrine, it's a false doctrine of annihilationism, that after the people who are unbelievers die, eventually they'll suffer in hell. At some point, God will just uncreate them and they'll just no longer exist. If that were so, then it could be said that God's wrath for them was satisfied after a certain time frame. And, as if, and if his wrath was satisfied at any point, he wouldn't uncreate them. He wouldn't annihilate them. In fact, he would restore them because his wrath would be satisfied. The smallest of sin. Think of the smallest again. A sin of omission. You could live your entire life commit one sin. Very small. I mean, nothing. Nothing at all, right? Just a little white lie. Something unimportant. And if that was the only sin that you ever committed in your entire life, an eternity in hell could not satisfy the wrath of God for that one small sin. And yet... In an instant, Christ satisfied the billions of sin for the millions of people that God will save. In an instant. Just think about that. Think about that this week. How Christ satisfied your countless sins and the countless sins of countless people and he satisfied it like that. And yet for the one who dies apart from Christ, even one small sin... That's all they ever committed in eternity and hell couldn't satisfy that. Verse 12b. James ends with, I call it the reflection. He says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? He broadens the scope beyond brethren. See, it might be easy. It is for me at times to think about not speaking against, you know, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, Good heavens, I would never want to slander or gossip anyone in here. And if I, and if I did, I mean, I, would, I pray that God would immediately convict me of that and, and grant me repentance from that and, and, and restore me from that and keep me from that. And it's easy to see that. And it's easy to say that. But he broadens it. Right? He starts in verse 11. He says, don't do it against your brethren, fellow believers. Here he opens it up to your neighbor. What about, what about your pagan neighbor who hates God, delights in evil, delights in wickedness, the corrupt politician, the debaucherous starlet in Hollywood, maybe a 
former business acquaintance or friend who has wronged you? What about them? He opens it up to them and he says, don't speak evil against them. And don't judge against them or judge them. He broadens it in this rhetorical question that he asks, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Though it is a rhetorical question, I'll answer. No one. I'm no one. I'm no one to speak against my brethren or my neighbor. I'm no one to judge or speak against you. You're no one to judge or speak against your brothers and sisters in Christ or your neighbor. Then why do we do it? Why do we do it then? Because I do it. I know Randy does it because we talked about that this week. So there's two of us in here who are guilty. I suspect there's more. So why do you do it? Is it because you're a hearer and not a doer, James 1.22? Is it because of dead faith? James 2.17, demonic faith, chapter 2. Those would all point to false converts or being a false convert. Maybe I'm a professor of faith, but in fact not a possessor. Maybe that's why I consistently sin how I sin and do what I do. Maybe you're like me this week. Just hadn't had this hidden sin exposed in your life as a believer. See, being confronted with this passage should force us to examine ourselves. Not only examine ourselves, but then to turn out of conviction and repentant heart from this sin. Turn from this sin. Turn to the only lawgiver and judge, the one who is not only able to destroy, but able to save. God promises in his word that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. All of it. Gossip, slander, pornography, alcoholism, hatred, anger, malice, wrath, all of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the conviction that you have brought me this week as I've studied your word. God, I thank you for the repentance that you've granted me this week from gossip slander, biblically judging others. But God, I need you to keep me, to keep me from that because it's a struggle, Lord. Lord, not only is this my prayer for me, but it's my prayer for this church, God, that you would use your word to convict us. Not only to convict us, Father, but to turn us from that sin and to turn us to you, Jesus, that we might become more like you, that we would honor you and that we would glorify you with our entire lives, not just what we think, but what we say and what we do. Thank you again, Father, for speaking to us today through your word. I pray, God, that you would continue to speak to us this week through your word as we meditate 
upon James, as we meditate upon the other scriptures that we'll study this week. Jesus, we ask these things for your name's sake, for your